This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. I've had great reviews from principals who have purchased the trauma course that I have available at jethrojones.com slash trauma. And it's not too late, not too late in the year to start talking about this. One principal recently got it and wanted to talk especially about self-care at this time of year. And that's a big part of dealing with trauma in your schools. So go to jethrojones.com slash trauma and get that course today. Welcome to Transformative Principle. This is episode 280. I am so excited to have Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath on the podcast today. He is currently a lecturer in Australia and the author of a recently new, newly released book called Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. And before you think this is just about business, let us remember that educators really need to make sure that our messages stick to our kids. So, Dr. Horvath, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the program. No, thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to to seeing what what we come up with today. Yeah, I I think it's going to be a great conversation. And as someone who is not a brain scientist, but is an educator and works with the brain all the time, I've got a lot of theories that I've heard about brains and how people learn and all that kind of stuff. What can you tell us about how kids actually learn that we can actually go back and apply to our day-to-day practice? Oh, this is what I love. So believe it or not, I was originally a teacher. So the only reason I ever went back to school to learn neuroscience and psych and all this stuff was so that I could go back to the classroom and A, work better with my own students and B, help other teachers go, cool, let's cut through the nonsense. Here's the good stuff. Here's the bad stuff. Because really back when I was teaching, and it's, and it's been longer than I thought, I thought I'd be back in the classroom by now, but kind of, it, it's one of those every day something new happens and you just kind of go down a new rabbit hole, but eventually I'll be back. But um, I, I, I remember back when I was teaching, that was when the brain stuff just started to really come out. And so people were coming in selling, you know, brain gym and brain based programming and brain cogmed and stuff. And you'd be like, wow, that's really interesting. How does it work? Like, what are you actually doing? 
And there were no answers. So it was this beautiful buzzword with zero depth. And I just got really fed up with it. So I went back, figured I'll learn it myself and help other teachers kind of cut through it and go, you don't need to listen to this. You can ignore this. Here's the useful tidbits. So rest assured listeners, I am a teacher. That's what I do. So the business stuff, that's what happens when you write a book and a publisher gets its hands on it. But for me, it's, it's all about this. So I think one of the biggest... That's interesting. I think one of the biggest kind of breakthroughs I had when it came to learning and understanding learning is that, believe it or not, everyone does it exactly the same way. There is one learning process where we begin by taking in facts and information. We then turn those facts and information into concepts. We then start shifting our definitions and edges of concepts. And then we apply and test those concepts. And then you have this kind of underlying pattern also of transfer where any new skills or information you learn, you kind of start moving around. But love it or hate it, any student who's ever learned anything, you can actually step back and chart that same process. So all these discussions of, and I think everyone knows learning styles are bunk, but then we have all these other things where it's, okay, well, personalization and differentiation and all this stuff. Really, in that instance, you're not talking about teaching, you're talking about preferences. You don't differentiate so students learn differently. You differentiate so they engage differently. So they want to be a part of the learning. But at the end of the day, the learning is exactly the same. So yeah, I guess that was my biggest take home was that there was no magic to it. And it's a process just like anything else. And once you see the process, you see it in autistic people, in ADHD people, in adults, in children, in babies, it just never stops. It is the learning process. So I think you... Uh, articulated that in a way that I have that I have believed, but never been able to articulate myself. So you you don't differentiate so students learn differently. You differentiate so students engage differently. And yeah. really, that is what to me it's all about. Because I get the piece that everybody learns in exactly the same way, but the part for me that where I feel we as educators have gone down the wrong path with that belief is that. And not everybody engages in exactly the same way. And so, you know, the learning styles thing, like that's all well and good if you can like use that, but that doesn't mean that's the only way you can learn. But if you can use those to help someone engage better, then, then that's where the magic happens because it really is all about engagement. Because if you're not engaged or as Seth Godin calls it enrolled, then it doesn't matter how good the teacher is, you know, you're never going to mentally show up to learn from that teacher. But there is something, and I, it, I love this. I need to talk to Seth. I've, he's been his, I've, I hear he's actually really easy to get a hold of. So I actually kind of want to talk with him about where he's, because there actually is this line where, okay, you want to learn anything, you have to engage with it. Cool. But it's not a linear relationship. So it turns out a little bit of engagement you will learn exactly the same as a ton of engagement. So there's a massive difference between no engagement and some engagement. And there's almost no difference between some engagement and extreme engagement, at least when it comes to learning. So this is where you have to really draw a line that engagement does not equal learning. It's an aspect of learning. It's one of those things that without it, you can't do it. But too often we can conflate engagement with learning. We're like, man, my kids were really engaged today. They probably learned a lot. No, I can be completely engaged and learn nothing. Yeah. So it's, it's how do we find that sweet spot of engagement with the right teaching and learning 
processes. So not only are you here and you have the motivation to keep going, but I'm ensuring you're ticking the right boxes so you can move forward in your learning. Yeah. So tell me more about that lack of difference between small engagement and deep engagement and how that doesn't really have an effect because that seems counterintuitive to me. It's totally weird, but so I think we've, we've, we've seen this before, but no one really knew how to explain it until kind of recently, till at least in the learning sciences, we put up that wall between engagement and learning to say something like engagement is required for learning, but it is not synonymous with learning. So what happens is, is as a simple experiment, and then we'll make kind of a more real life example. We call it the Attenborough effect. So you take one group of people and you let them watch one of those incredible David Attenborough films. Like, have you, have you seen like Planet Earth 2? Of course. Hunt? How many times? Oh, yeah. How good are those shows? So you, you take this thing and you plop a group of people down to watch it and you ask them questions like, how much did you like it? How engaged were you? How attentive were you? And the scores are through the roof. They engaged out of the daylights with it. And then you ask them, how much do you think you learned? And they thought they learned a ton. Take another group of kids, and all you do is take the dialogue from that same episode of Attenborough. So take away the sexy pictures, take away all the movement, just have a lecturer read the dialogue with static shots of animals on a PowerPoint behind them. Ask kids to watch that and say, how much did you engage with it? And it's really low. It's like two, three. It was kind of interesting, but who cares? Ask them how much they learned, and they go, "Eh, probably not all that much. A week later, test them, and lo and behold, they both learned exactly the same amount. Didn't matter that they were that one group was wildly engaged and one group was mildly engaged. The learning was identical. The memory formation, the ability to recall and transfer didn't change between them. So now there's where you start to go, okay, that sounds counterintuitive. Because the third piece then is if you have another group that watches, say, the lecture with no images and it's just boring and they're totally disengaged, like their engagement level is zero, then they learn nothing. So it's like engagement has to be turned on, but once it's on, it doesn't really seem to impact learning. It impacts motivation, it impacts enjoyment, it impacts how much you think you learn, but it doesn't really have that much of an impact on the learning itself. Which if you think about it, so now go back, my favorite example is always these Marvel movies, is you watch a superhero movie and you're wildly engaged or you watch a period piece from the 90s and you're kind of bored half of the movie. But at the end of the day, you really don't remember all that much from the Marvel film. You remember about the same as you do from that film you were bored watching, that English patient that you might not have really enjoyed all that much. And again, it's because even if you're wildly engaged, that doesn't seem to drive learning any more than just medium engagement. Well, that's very interesting. So I think another example of that is... Another conflation, I would say, is when it comes to educational technology, for example, where the thing that rankled me and still rankles me about that is that many times those companies are, are pitching those products saying, your kids will be very engaged with this. But in those situations, I've often said engagement doesn't equal learning. And so you can be, you can be really into, you know, some, like storytelling math game that you, you know, just play, but that doesn't mean that you're actually learning. And so how do you, how do you effectively teach and go through that one learning process so that kids, you know, regardless of their engagement, as long as they're engaged, they're going to be understanding it. What are your tips and advice for that for teachers in the classroom? So first, I think you're, you're totally spot on. That's a great example. The, 
tech is wildly engaging, but there's zero pedagogy behind it. So even though the kids want to play it for five hours, no clue what they come away with. So this is where kind of the science of learning and the craft of teaching really start to converge, where we start to say, okay, what does this mean for us as teachers? And unfortunately, this is, I teach an entire master's program on this at uni. So, I mean, this is like a two-year thing. But this is where we start to say, okay. Well, let's distill down to five minutes. We can do that, right? We can do it. We can make this <laughs> stuff happen. I think a good kind of thing is where you go, all right, engagement, once I've got it, now what am I going to do with it? And here's where you kind of get what I'll call kind of thinking principles, which are kind of hardware-based principles, things that the brain allows us and doesn't allow us to do. And then you have learning principles, these kind of patterns of learning. So for for example, let's think of like, like a thinking principle would be something along the lines of say, okay, the brain cannot, you cannot read text while listening to somebody speak simultaneously. The brain cannot handle that. It's, it's not an issue of if I practice hard enough, I can do it. It's a literal hardware issue where you can either read something and listen to your silent reading voice, or you can listen to somebody speak and listen to their voice, but you can never do both simultaneously. So this is one of those great learning moments or teaching moments where you go, cool, this is a thinking issue where if now that I've got your attention, now it's time to start learning and teaching, I'd better not give you a handout while trying to teach over that handout, or I'd better not pop up a slide with a dozen words while trying to get you to do something else. So we kind of have these thinking principles. And that's, that's essentially what the book is, is let's get 12 of these thinking principles that context irrelevant, con, a content irrelevant these things still hold true wherever, whenever, however. The kind of more fun ones, and I don't, I don't go into them in the, the book. I'm going to do a second book on this specifically just for teachers, are the learning issues. And so this is when you start to go, okay, thinking issues. You can only take in X amount of information at a time before you need time to consolidate it. Thinking issue, you, need, you can only focus your attention this duration of time before you need to shift. All right, learning issue, where do I begin? All learning needs to begin with and people hate it, but it has to begin with facts. It doesn't matter how deep your skills are. It doesn't matter how deep your knowledge and experiences are. If you don't know the facts of something, you can't apply your skills. You can't apply your knowledge. You can't go deep. So a lot of programs at this point, they go into kind of, let's start with inquiry. Let's start with projects. And that might be great for engagement and curiosity, but that's horrible for learning. A kid won't learn by diving into inquiry. They'll get intrigued, but they won't learn. So you've got to start with cool. We've got to build what are called semantic memories for those facts, for the key 10 or 15 facts. How do you build a semantic memory? You take a further step back and you go, cool. In order to build a semantic memory for a fact, I need to form at least three episodic memories for that fact. Now, I know these terms probably mean nothing at all to your listeners, but that's a perfect example of... You don't know the terms, so you can't even comprehend what I'm talking about half the time because you don't have the facts. You don't have the knowledge. So your listening comprehension skill, totally useless in this context. But so, so to kind of simplify, this is where we go, cool. What I'm talking about is right out of the gate with learning. Once you've got them engaged, once you've got them curious, maybe you've asked them some questions, maybe you've done an experiment and they're going, whoa, what's going on? Time to start hitting the facts. What you have to do is you have to build what are called episodic memories for the relevant facts. Now, an episodic memory is, it's essentially memories of interaction, of exposure tied to a time and place. So right now, I'm forming an episodic memory of me talking to you. 
And if I ever want to imagine myself talking to you in the future or recall this memory, I have to relive this moment. I have to go back and say, yep, it was that afternoon. I was sitting on my chair. I had my headset on. I totally remember it. My dog was walking around behind me. Boom. That's an episodic memory. So what happens is, is the more episodic memories you make that contain similar ingredients, you can eventually pull out those key ingredients, those key ideas, and create a standalone, contextless, accessible anywhere, wherever fact in your brain. And we call those semantic facts. So right now, this is our first time having this conversation. Cool. Imagine if tomorrow I sat down and I wrote a blog about this conversation. Now I've got two episodic memories with this information. You and I talking about it, me writing about it. Now, a couple days later, imagine I have a debate with somebody about what we talked about today. We debate the podcast. Now I've got three episodic memories about this podcast. Me and you talking, me writing a blog, me having a debate. Eventually, I form all these episodic memories. The only thing similar between them all is the information that we were discussing. That gets pulled out of the context, out of the episodic memories, becomes a standalone semantic fact that now I can access. It's essentially a memory. And now I'm ready to start going deeper with my learning. So all starting of learning has to be, let's just build episodic memories to pull out semantic facts. If we don't do that, you're going to be confused the rest of the journey. And believe it or not, this, it's, once you start to see that pattern, you'll see it everywhere. You'll see it in all your students. Students who don't get something and suddenly do, you can actually track it back to, well, they read a book and then they played a game and then they did a quiz. And all of that was just building episodic memories until they had enough to pull out a semantic back. And that's how essentially all good learning has to start. So with that understanding, um, and this is where leading with inquiry seems to make some sense if I understood what you were saying correctly, but it's my first episodic memory of it. So I could, I could be getting it wrong. Did I use that right? Forming you from absolute, this is your yeah. first time playing with this content. So yeah. it's, it's your first episodic memory. Cool. Yeah. The more you play with it in the future, it'll eventually solidify. But at this point, we're just building it. So yeah. ask away. So if I understand it correctly, the, the benefit of leading with inquiry is that it gives more opportunities for episodic memories to occur rather than, I feel like the traditional route of education is give the semantic facts. But yep. in order to get that, then you have to have the episodic memories, but you're not going to get the episodic memories because you're not engaging in anything that is creating in an episodic memory. You're just saying, you know, here's all here's this, the facts. Here's, here's the facts, here's the states with the capitals, instead of like telling a story about why Juno is the capital of Alaska, even though it's not the biggest city in the state and it's not the most easily accessible state or city in the state. And so, so why does it matter that Juneau is the capital of Alaska instead of Anchorage, which is what everybody thinks it is because that's the most, the most well-known city. So I see where leading with inquiry could be beneficial there. Am I reading that wrong or? No, you're, you're kind of, I'm going to, it's slightly tangential. In that instance, you're absolutely right in that if you're using inquiry to explicitly play with facts, totally fine. The other way people use the inquiry, though, is to organize ideas, create, be innovative, come up with a new solution. In those instances, if you lead with that type of inquiry, the best you can ever hope from that is engagement, is curiosity, is you get kids wanting to know more. So if you come out with a, 
I, I always use med examples because I work in the med school here. So if I come out with a year of freshman med students, and I say, here's a patient with these symptoms, diagnose them. They have no clue what to do. But after working with it for a couple hours, they're intrigued. They want to know how to diagnose this person. So I go, okay, take that inquiry we just did and cite it. Now that you're excited about it, cool. Shove it over to the side. I'm going to take a step back. Now we're going to build semantic facts. So we're going to do active learning with these facts. So draw a picture, have a debate, do take a test, do all this stuff. And then once you have the facts, we're going to come back in about a month to that initial inquiry, one that you were so intrigued by. And now you're going to be ready to actually inquire about. Now you're going to, you have the facts to allow that inquiry more than just digging around poking on Google. Now your inquiry can be guided in what you have. So I often say, yeah, the, the traditional form of inquiry where it's just this big project, develop something, answer something. You do that at the beginning, that'll intrigue your students, but they're not ready for it yet. You can only start to bring that in after you then go through the surface facts and the conceptualization. But if you use inquiry as a mode of delivery of facts, then that works fine as a factual delivery. If you say inquiry, go look online and I want you to find me the five biggest cities in Alaska and tell me which one is the capital. That's just essentially fact-based guided inquiry. Just go find me answers to a question. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that does. And I, I think that this gets to another one of my little issues with education. And that is that everybody has to know the same exact stuff, even though nobody ever really does. And that is a myth that we're doggedly chasing, never going to reach, despite yeah. Common Core and state testing and our best efforts. I, I really believe that we need to let go of that and yeah. allow people to learn things that are important to them and, you know, still have some basic level, but there's just too much right now. And so, for example, we did this thing at my school that we called Synergy. And it was just a, a name for something where kids were in control of their own learning rather than doing, you know, whatever the state standard was at the time, right? And so yeah. we gave them time during the day and then we let them develop their own projects and do the things that they were interested in. So we had kids who wanted to build a social network and we had kids who, who wanted to dance and we had kids who wanted to teach other kids how to play soccer, volleyball and uh, do cheer. And so we had all these different experiences that the kids were doing. And the difference is, is that typically when a teacher does inquiry, they're like, here's this answer that we already know exists. So you do inquiry to try and find it. And it's like, if you already know the answer, then why are we doing inquiry? Just tell them. Yeah, just yep. tell them, you know? And, and so they do inquiry in that way so they can still say, yes, we met all the standards. The way that we did this is we wanted kids to learn and go deeper in something that they already knew, which means they already had the semantic memories for part of it. And they just needed to yep. continue to develop and grow and learn in that area. And so no two kids were learning the same thing and they were all all over the map as far as what they were learning. Now, the amazing thing is that we could very discreetly go into a group, see the things that they were doing and then tie those two standards that we could then say, yes, this kid knows how to do this. So I was working with a student council, for example, they had to do research about different things so I could see the research that 
the research standards that they do in language arts that I could check off. They had to publish things. They had to create things. They had to write scripts. All those kinds of things. I could see how those standards were being checked off, but they weren't being checked off the same for every single kid. And that's an area where I think we as educators really struggle because we want everybody to do the same thing when we just need to be okay with them doing the thing that they need. So then when we do have standards they need to learn, then we need to go through that learning process and teach them that specifically, but recognize that one, a lot of kids already come with that knowledge. And two, uh, we can find that if we go in after them, instead of saying, here's the answer, use inquiry to get to it. That is, you've nailed it. I think what happened is a lot of people and curriculum, and I'm down in Australia, so very similar here. Curricula were and standards were originally fairly vague in for that very reason, where it was like, can your kid write or publish publishable piece? And they didn't tell you what kind because they were allowing for the fact that some kid might want to write and publish scientifically. Some kid might want to write and publish a blog. Some kid might want to write and publish music, sheet music. So they just had the general theme, can you write and publish? The idea that the students would be able to fill in and then us as teachers would be able to link it and say, yep, they did write and publish. It just so happened to be in this format and it was great. Have a good time. The more kind of teachers ask, like here anyway, a lot of teachers got just really nervous. What are you really looking for? And so the standards became more and more specific. Well, we're really looking for effective spelling. We're looking for this type of language. We're looking for these words. We're looking for these headings. And what happened was what was once was a standard essentially got pushed into a fact, semantic fact. They were no, lo- no longer looking for a skill and ability, a behavior. They were looking for memory, ability to do a very specific thing. And once you do that, I'm back in that camp where I'm like, well, if you know exactly what words you're looking for to get an A plus on a paper, just tell the kids that. Don't make them guess that. If you have a rubric that says you better use 10 keywords, good. That's a, that's a fact. You're not asking your kids to think. You're asking them to give you keywords. Just tell them. Give them the chance to succeed if you know exactly what it is you're looking for. If you want your kids to have agency and be able to go deep, then one of the things as teachers we have to do is say, cool, there are no more yes, no answers. So go back. Remember I said, so surface learning is semantic facts. And necessarily a fact has to have yes, no, right, wrong, black, white. It has to be binary. So right now you can say Juno is the capital of Alaska, true or false. At this moment, it's true. In the past sometime, it may have been false. Maybe in the future, it's false again. But at any one time, a fact is either right or wrong. So if you have an assessment or a quiz or a test that have right or wrong answers, then by definition, you're testing surface knowledge facts, which isn't a problem. Just let your kids know that. If you want to go deeper, the next level, once you move beyond facts, so you've got all your semantic facts, your inquiry cycle was exactly this. What did you call it? Synergy? That's right. Yep. So it was, it's exactly this is once you move from facts, you have to go deep. And the first stage of deep learning is called conceptualization. Essentially, how are you going to organize your facts? You have like all these yes, no, true, false, right, wrong facts. How are you going to group what global buckets are you going to put them together in and say, ooh, these six facts seem to go together. Oh, these four seem to go together. You're forming concepts. But because a concept, so in this instance, let's say Juno's the capital of Alaska, a concept would be, what is a capital city? The, the idea of a capital city itself is a concept. 
not right or wrong. It's just how are you grouping your facts? So to develop your concept of capital city, you might draw upon the Juno fact. You might draw upon population facts. You might draw upon uh, historical facts to build what your concept is. Now, unfortunately, by its definition, as a concept simply an organizing principle, it can never be right or wrong. Concepts, deep learning, can't be binary, can't be yes, no. If it is, if there's a concept, if you're looking for a very specific definition of a concept, like if you ask a kid, what's your concept of a capital city? You better tell me it's where the seat of government is. And you're not asking for a concept, you're asking for a fact. So if you want to go deep, you necessarily have to release yes, no, right, wrong, typical assessments, typical grading styles. And unfortunately, it's just a very uncomfortable thing for a lot of people to feel unsafe when they say, okay, kids, I'm not going to tell you yes, no. All I'm going to do is discuss and debate with you. And that's going to be our assessment. Yeah. And you can see how powerful it is. Your synergy seems to have done it perfectly. Oh, it's amazing. You strip away details and you say, we're no longer looking for a thing. We're looking for you to tell us stuff. And I might debate, I might push back, but at the end of the day, I'm, you're never going to be wrong. So let's learn. And it's that freedom. Once you get there, you know you're in deep learning. When there's no longer an answer, now you're in deep learning. Yeah, I love that. And, and so when you, when you have that perspective about what you're going for, then it definitely is really powerful. And the things that these kids ended up learning because they had to conceptualize we could have never we could have never said i want you to learn this so real quick short story these girls did this thing where they created a uh they taught kids from a neighboring elementary school how to do uh cheer dance and and volleyball or soccer no cheer volleyball soccer that's what it was <laughs> so they did that and halfway through the year they were like we were just teaching little girls we want to teach boys also so we need some boy students at our school to do this with us and join in with us. So, you know, I talked to them. I knew the boys who were applying to do that and they needed yeah. to like create a job and a job description and post a job advertisement and get people to be interested and interview these kids and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I know the boys who are applying. You're going to have a hard time working with them. Are you sure you want to do this? And they said, yes, we do. And I said, okay. These boys are not going to care as much about what you've created as you do because you created it and they're just joining your work. So you've got to be real cautious about not letting them destroy it. And sure enough, those boys who who could not take it seriously for whatever reason, um, they came in and they started destroying it. And these girls had to decide whether or not they were going to fire these boys or try to coach them up. And they had to make yeah. that decision themselves. I wasn't going to make it for them. And I could have never said, okay, you guys need to, your goal this year is to learn how to hire someone and then fire them in a short amount of time when you realize they don't work. And like, yeah. I couldn't have set that as a standard, but boy, they sure learned a lot from that experience. Isn't that incredible? And if you, at the beginning of the year, if you'd have been like, here's what I want to see the kids do. You're right. You would have squashed that. You would have not seen, you would have wanted them to go down a very specific road. So when they came to you and said, we're really interested in hiring the boys, you'd say, well, no, I'd, I think you should rather focus on this. Mm -hmm. And your pre-written story would have guided what they were allowed to do. Exactly. By letting it go 
it let them go. And lo and behold, they learned something that we struggle teaching people. It's hard to teach kids that. And they didn't just teach it. They had to experience it, which means they learned it better than some kid I sit down and say, typically when you hire somebody, here's what you have to do. You need to fire them. Here's a good way to do it. They didn't learn it. They did it. How cool is that? Oh, it was, it was unreal. And that's just one story out of like 50 different amazing stories. Very similar to that. So very specific things for that one group to learn. Yeah. Another one real quick, our uh, student council, they were supposed to, they said at the beginning, our goal is to help students feel like they matter. And, and so that's what we want to do is make kids feel like they matter. So we're like, okay, what's one thing that you want to do to do that? Well, we want to recognize everybody's birthday. So they started that conversation, Jared, in September. The first time they actually recognized somebody's birthday was at the end of February, beginning of March. And for whatever reason, they had to go through that process. But again, like I, it wasn't my goal for them to, to do that. That was what they came up with. And that was what they yeah. wanted to have happen. And so they had to figure that process out. They had to go through that. And had I wanted them to learn a specific thing, then even a, con- a conceptualization of something, they couldn't have gotten there in that same way if that was my goal, right? And so they learned how to organize. They learned how to make assignments that people fell through on and all that kind of stuff. And it was you know, just so many different stories about this kind of stuff. And last one that I just have to share real quick. <laughs> so yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I love these. My daughter has Down syndrome. She's very far behind everybody else academically. And she joined a group and they were supportive and helped her and did great. And then at the change in the semester, a girl said, I want to do sign language and I want more people to join me. And so my daughter, who has experience with sign language, went from being someone they were making accommodations for to leading the sign language group with this other girl. And each time I went into the classroom, I saw that she was taking a leadership role And that was something that she never had that opportunity to do in in any other class because she just didn't have the skills to be able to lead. And this one, she did. And so she got leadership experience that was not fake, that was not set up by a teacher to make it happen. It was her taking her own knowledge and skills and being able to share those with somebody else. And I mean, I can go on all night, but I won't. (laughs) Did that just make your your heart sing? Oh, like I'm... I'm working on my first kid, but it's taken longer than expected. But I have my dog. <laughs> this is as close to my kid as I got. And every once in a while at the park, she'll do something. And it's like your heart melts. Yeah. When you're like, oh, she's interacting differently today. Or she's leader of the pack today. And it's just like, oh, yeah, it's so beautiful when you see it happen. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. And and so we only imagine it like 10 times more with actual human beings. Yeah. But in yeah. my small experience, I love it. Yeah. And with our synergy groups, that's exactly what we saw was kids who, who weren't the leaders taking leadership roles and doing hard things. And, and I really believe that it's because we didn't set it up to be, this is what you need to learn. Our, our goal at the outset was make the world a better place. And you yeah. using your own gifts and abilities, you figure out how to do that. Make it happen. And you know what you've done to kind of now moves into, hear me out, this is going to sound weird for a second, but it'll make sense in the end. Did you ever have to teach, sit down and teach your daughter and have her go through a class on leadership abilities? 
or did she just manifest those when it was her time to do it? She manifested them when it was her time to do it. Did you ever have to teach those girls social skills, emotional regulation skills, and empathetic skills when they had to fire the boys? Like, did you sit down and say, today's empathy day, or did they just demonstrate it when the time came? Well, what's funny is most of them demonstrated it. One of them was a total jerk, and I did have to teach her. <laughs> so, oh, you've got <laughs> yeah, but most of them, they, they, totally, they totally got it. And one, I was just like, hey, you're being pretty harsh. And you <laughs> don't the point. you don't need to be that harsh, all right? You don't have to destroy the boys. You just need to let them know they're not welcome. That's it. You, you know? don't have to yell at them. You don't have to make them feel bad. <laughs> but this is what I love. So there's this big movement in education now where we we try and teach kids well being, and we try and teach kids resilience. And the stats on kids' abilities to do these things are so low right now. It's like, why do kids in our generation, why are they so non-resilient? Why do they not have these social skills? And our answer to it is, well, we're not teaching them hard enough. Come on, let's get more classes. And there's a big movement down here called positive education where, yeah, you know, every Monday you've got your well-being class. Every Tuesday you've got your empathy class and your failure class and your resilience class. And the biggest joke in the world is you don't teach those things. You live those things. All those skills that we want our kids to have are what are called contextually emergent skills. You don't sit down and do them. They happen because you're in a context where you have no choice but to do those things. So for instance, my wife went to Nepal last, last month. So she's a, a psychologist and she really wanted to work with Nepalese women and teach them resilience and female empowerment and all this stuff. So she calls me about three days after leaving and she says, these women need to learn resilience about as much as I need to learn how to tie my shoe. They have resilience in spades. Even though they don't know it, they've never been trained on it, they don't know the terminology. Why? Because if they weren't resilient, they would have died. They yeah. didn't have a choice but to be resilient. It's a contextual issue. So the reason why our kids today are not resilient, are afraid of failure, have low well-being, isn't because they don't know enough of it. It's because we've built a context where they don't ever get to exercise those skills. So for instance, take something like fear of failure. Uh, I just worked with a school this afternoon where their big thing is their students, it's a girls' school, and the girls just cannot handle, handle failing, and they keep trying to work with them on it, and the teachers keep trying to show them it's okay to fail. It's okay. I walked into that school and within five minutes, I said, I know exactly what your problem is. I said, what? There's two things. One, your teachers are afraid of failing. Your te the teachers will say to their students, fail, but their jobs are so on the line all the time if their kids don't perform that the teachers themselves never fail, never make a mistake. And trust me, kids will always mimic the teacher's actions more than their words every day. So even if a teacher says, be nice, if a teacher says, be nice, and then goes and hits someone, the kid learns to hit people. And in this instance, the teacher says, it's okay to fail, but it's very easy to read their body language that they're terrified of failure. So what am I going to do? Listen to you or actually live like you? The latter. So one, there's no context for the teachers to fail. And two, they're a highly independent, standardized testing school. So the girls who go to this school want to get into the top tier universities. And in order to do that, we've made it very clear that you need to score this grade on a test. And if they don't get that grade, they're not going to that school. And in Australia, it's worse than the US. Like 
US, you can at least supplement your SAT scores with other stuff. Here, there's hard cutoff scores. If you want to get into the top tier university, you have to score above a certain level. If you don't, you're out. There's no way in. Sorry, have a good one. So no context at all to it. So you want your kids to be okay with failure, yet they know if they fail, they're literally not going to be able to continue with the life that they want to lead. So what do you expect these kids to do? They're not afraid of failure because we haven't taught them. They're afraid of failure because we've built the context, which tells them if you fail, you're out. You want to get kids okay with failure, scrap your well-being classes, change the context, get rid of some of the tests, allow your teachers to fail, have experimentation, do more of like your synergy inquiry thing where we don't know what the end of the year is going to look like. That's where it emerges from context. It's not a skill that's taught and then you can just do wherever you want to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And there were a number of kids who failed numerous times and could (laughs) never just start. And we kept saying, that's part of the process. You know, we're not worried. Like, you don't have to show an A to be successful in this energy project. You need to be doing something. And, you know, some kids, they didn't do a lot. And so we would have conversations and we try to coach them up and we try to get them to make better choices. And yep. you know, most of the kids did awesome with that. Some of the kids, boy, they just, they couldn't ever, they couldn't ever do anything productive the whole entire year during that time. Now, yeah, does, yeah. does that mean that was a total waste of time for them? I don't think so. I believe that they still learned valuable things. They learned one aspect that isn't necessarily a positive thing, but they did learn it, that there are times where you can get away with not doing anything. And and that is a reality of life. And we as adult educators are afraid for kids to learn that. But that's the truth, man. <laughs> you can, they learn that, look, you control your destiny. You learn how to right. play the game. You learn responsibility or lack of, you learn consequences. If, yep. hey, if there is none, there is none. Sometimes, congratulations. That's what learning is supposed to be in schools. Yeah. I, I, I love, don't get me wrong, I love content, but honestly, there's kind of this argument that school is meant to prep kids for work. Nonsense. Trust me, if you want a kid to work, you don't need a 12 year general education, you need a two year apprenticeship. They'll learn everything they need to know about a job just by going and doing that job. So if the purpose of a 12-year general ed isn't about getting a job, then what else is it about? It has to be about those experiences. It has to be about failing. It has to be about succeeding. It has to be about getting a girlfriend and losing a girlfriend and failing a test and passing a test and being a leader and being a follower. It has to just be about experiences. So when you go into the real life and decide, maybe I do want to go learn about a job and you do go get an apprenticeship, it is still all apprentice. I'm not a a neuroscientist because I've been doing it since I was in kindergarten. I'm a neuroscientist because after all my education, I made a choice and and trained specifically for that. So all the pre-education just has to be giving me experiences and ability to learn, knowledge of my own processes and abilities. So that when I make my decisions later in life, I feel confident enough to go do that. You don't have to get me a job. You don't have to answer my questions. You just need to make sure I get the experience of doing them. And that's what I love about K-12. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I, I think that's a, a great place to end. The last question that I have for everybody is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? 
<laughs> I would take out the like you. I, I don't know that I'm quite yet at the transformative leader level. I'm trying my best to run a lab, but I'm not great at it yet. Um, I'm learning all the things that I think good principals already know in terms of listening, in terms of not micromanaging, all that stuff. But I think the best, when I think back to the best principals I've ever worked with or the best lab leaders I've ever had, people, (laughs) it's going to sound weird, but it's people who you don't really know what they think at the end because they're not trying to convince you to agree with them. They're just trying to get you to question your own thinking and assumptions. So I just remember working with, with two different lab leaders, one principal and one lab head, where it didn't matter what idea I came up with, they would just push against it. They would say, have you considered this? Have you considered this? Ooh, what about this? And it was infuriating at the time, but your concepts expand, they expand, and eventually the idea you come up with is so much better than it would have been in the first. And then you take a step back and you go, I actually think my lab leader agreed with my original idea. She was just pushing against it get me to keep going. So in the end, I really have no idea what their opinions, thoughts, beliefs are on anything because they were too busy just getting me to think about mine. Yeah. That's, I think, a good point. It's not about convincing others to agree with you. It's about getting them to just question themselves. Yeah. I I think that's a great answer. I love that. Uh, Jared, how do people connect with you, learn more from you, and get your book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing? So yeah, the book is everywhere. It's on Amazon. It should be in all the bookstores out there. So that's easy to find. And I've got a website called lmeglobal.net. So that's learning made easy. Um, this is what the LME stands for. And on lmeglobal.net, there's some videos, there's some links. I have some some classes that are online that are, I think, free now. I hope they're free. It's going to try to steal it once. But it should be free. <laughs> it's really like tried to upload it to one of those sites. It was weird. I didn't know what the heck was happening. Um, and then it, um, I, was, I just started Twitter as well. So I'm at JC Horvath. And if you like sports tweets, that's about all I'm good at right now. Game of Thrones tweets, that's about all I got. But hopefully I'll get better at that as well. That's okay. Game of Thrones tweets are all the rage these days. So that'll be that is, oh, That's why I'm enjoying it right yeah. now. So. <laughs> yeah, this this podcast won't, won't age well since uh, this is the last season right now. But that's okay. I'm oh, sure it'll, it'll be canonical. Game of Thrones will always be in our hearts. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, thanks so much again for being part of Transformative Principle, Jared. I appreciate it. Thank you. You guys have a good one. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE.